Hello everybody, how are you? Here we are then, lockdown the sequel, as I like to refer to it. But it obviously has repercussions for the cinema world as well, in that there are lots of things that did have cinema releases penciled within the next month, and those have obviously been affected. Over the next couple of weeks, um, what I really want to try and do on the podcast is to celebrate and shout about some of those films that were due to have cinematic releases um, and unfortunately have not got that opportunity anymore, but are still going to be made available to you guys via streaming services and the likes. So that's the plan over the next couple of weeks, but very excited that our latest guest, on this week's episode of Soundtracking is a composer whose work, well, you'll almost certainly know and adore. As you'll hear, Stephen Price took the scenic route, it's our route of choice if I'm being honest, uh, into full-blown film scoring with Attack the Block in 2011 after many years on the periphery of the business. His patience well and truly paid off because he went on to win an Oscar for Gravity. He's also worked on World's End, Baby Driver, Suicide Squad and the Aeronauts, amongst many, many other brilliant things. Stephen joined me to discuss a couple of new projects that he's done for Netflix, which you can watch right now. Glenn Keane's beautiful animation, Over the Moon, and David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet, both very different, but both extremely moving in their own way. In no small part, thanks to Stephen's music. So let's get right to it with a cue from Over the Moon entitled Nighttime Conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. It's so great to um, to get to chat to you um, for the podcast because you've, you've featured on it loads, which has been nice. I was really chuffed when this came up because I've, I've, I've been following it for, since you started off doing it. So oh, thank it's, you. Um, and loads of people I know who've done it. They all say it's a nice thing to do and you know what you're talking about, which is all great, you know. Oh, well, listen, so I'm, you're, I'm you're very highly rated. That's very kind. I come to it as a fan. That's how I'm coming to it. I don't try to profess to know kind of when it comes to music and film, I'm just coming at it purely as a fan perspective, really. I'm going to say it now that we're never going to have enough time today to talk about all the work, the brilliant work that you've done. But I thought it'd be really nice to start with the now and these two kind of projects, very different projects that you have. Well, different, but they, there's a kind of connection between the two, I guess, in a way as well. I sat down with my kids the other night and we watched um, this beautiful animation, which I just was like, I, didn't, I hadn't really heard much about it, to be honest. And I thought it was absolutely gorgeous. It was so different. It surprised you at every corner in a good way. And we all kind of came away having taken something different from it. And I just wanted to ask, what was the attraction to the project for you that you wanted to get involved, first of all? Um, it was exactly that, really. A, I love working in animation anyway, and I've always loved watching animations. And having a young family, we've obviously just watched animations for years and years. <laughs> 
And, and Glenn Keane had been someone who had been a massive part of childhood. You know, he was the, the lead animator on things like Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and, you know, all the Tarzan, all these sort of things. Mm. And the fact he was doing the film was exciting for a start. And then I read the script and that was clearly, you know, going for a very emotional, moving thing. And then they started showing me bits of the art, which were just insane. You know, you had these beautiful visions of China, mm. where the, the majority of the film is based, but then this other world of the dark side of the moon, where everything is, is lit with these incredible neon sort of shades, and everything is, is born out of the tears of the moon goddess. And, this. and all of a sudden, you could get the music for this could be, you know, a brilliant opportunity to do something a bit, bit different, but also to to kind of swing for it in an emotional kind of way as well. And they're just the gift for, for music, really. The, the tone of it is so so clever in that you know it's 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 some hard hitting stuff in there for kids you know in terms of loss and grief and particularly losing a parent as well you know but I think that the way that they have gently kind of navigated the pace of the film and particularly with the comedic elements of in there as well I think it's so kind of beautifully crafted. Yeah, and I think all, all credit to to Glenn and the people around him because they. They were always very keen that it, it didn't patronise people, but we used the sort of story that, that was here to deal with those sort of things. And, you know, we, we were working on it all through the first half of this year musically. And, you know, obviously an awful lot of stuff was going horribly wrong in the world at that time as well. And it almost felt like it's a film about hope, really, and about sort of moving on and learning to live with a new situation. Yeah. And it just kind of all felt like we were doing it at the right kind of time. <laughs> Where do you start with a project like this in terms of working out what you want this score to sound like because you then obviously have these songs within it as well you know there's a kind of musical element to it of um, original songs in there so you've got to complement that but you've also got to work with the story and the emotion and the narrative so is it quite is it quite tricky or is it fun or both I mean it's fun for me just because you know the challenge is always the the fun bit and I, I love working with things with songs anyway and I've done a lot of work with people like Edgar Wright who I know you've had on the show a few times um, and where songs are so key to it, it becomes this sort of this adventure of how you make a load of disparate songs feel like a, a continuous journey. Yeah. In this film, the songs were written by the time I got involved, and they're quite a diverse collection of songs. You know, you've got things going from Broadway things to, to you know the big sort of showpiece moment in the in the middle where it's kind of a K-pop kind of thing. Mm. And so I knew that the score would have to kind of weave in between those things and kind of make it feel like a seamless thing. But within that there was an awful lot of room for the score to, to be the kind of emotional voice running through. It started off in, in China in this sort of very bustly kind of water village where, where Fei Fei lives and everything all felt like very buzzy and the family's all interrupting each other and everything all felt like it was um, musically, you could kind of get this energy in there.
But then once you went to the moon, all of a sudden everything opened up and these incredible vistas of widescreen stuff. So you kind of got this sense really early on that it was going to act in, in these acts. You know, you'd start very, very intimate, very busy, and then gradually get more and more expansive. And you just start to hear things in your, in your head. You know, certainly with Lunaria, I remember seeing the first visuals of, of them flying into Lunaria for the first time. And it just sounded like this big, expansive, glistening thing. You know, the colors are so alive. And Glenn would describe how everything was going to be lit from within. Um, and it would all feel like it was electric, you know, and fizzing. And so that kind of influenced how, how the music came together. So I kind of, I heard stuff in you know, my mind when I was, I was working on the very early things and then it was a matter of chasing it. And throughout the process, they kept adding a little bit more lighting or a little bit more this, that and the other. <laughs> and that would send me back to my sketches and go, oh, now I need to do this, you know. That's amazing to think that a, a kind of visual thing, like, a, you know, a light being adjusted means that you have to, you adjust what you do. It's the kind of, the synergy's got to be just right, hasn't it, between the two? I think that, and that's that's where I've always struggled with projects where, you know, they, they like you to come on board with the script, you know, because it's a great thing to do and sometimes it works out fantastically and they can play some music on the set. But there's been times when I've done that and then when you actually see how they've lit those scenes, you go, oh, all my instrument choices are totally wrong. You know, I've got that, you know, I've got the, the approach of this, this wrong because of how it looks. Yeah. And animation's a fascinating one for me. I always work in quite a layered kind of way musically anyway. And so do they. So it was this lovely little back and forth where I'd, I'd have a kind of uh, a cue on the go. But mm. with each iteration of the picture, it would just tweak me in a slightly different direction. And after a few iterations of that, you suddenly ended up in a place you could never have imagined, you know, at the start of the process. So it was, it was fun to, to go, especially with someone like, like Glenn, who, you know, has got all of these stories of how they, they've done incredible sequences in the past. And you could kind of um, you know, draw on what he'd done before. Whenever I find myself in those situations with people like that, I am kind of forget about what I'm actually there to do and I'm just pushing them to tell me stories about what they <laughs> Yeah, there was a bit of that. There were quite a lot of Zoom calls where I managed to distract him totally. We did an entire hour once on the hairstyles of various Disney characters that he designed. 
and how the hair was so intrinsic to the characterizations. I mean, honestly, it, he's, there's not a thing he hasn't thought about with this stuff. It was brilliant for me writing it because if I was you know, trying to get the themes for a character or a, a scene, he would say, you know, um, well, I, I can't tell you what I want musically, but I can tell you how I learned how to draw the character and what I was thinking about then. And all these little character details that, that were just in his head when he was drawing it would affect the way an eyebrow was and the way a character's face would move. And it was amazing how when you got into that approach of how he drew the character, it sort of answered a lot of questions you have musically. That's amazing. We, we totally take so much for granted, don't we, when we sit down and watch these fabulous creations of the, the work that goes into them and how long they take to make as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing for me is there's, there's no lucky accidents in animation. You know, if it's on screen, it's because someone has decided it's going to go on screen, screen and they've designed that. You know, you can have a little lens flare or whatever that might be a beautiful moment in a live action thing. If there's anything like that in animation, they've decided that's going to be there and they, they kind of want you to pick it out. They want you to, to play musically to it. So it means, and a lot of times, you find yourself working incredibly detailed with the music as well, which is, you know, it's fun to do. I remember doing a Q&A once, I think it was with the team behind the last Cars film. And the, there was a little Q&A and they had some kids in the audience and this little boy kind of put his hand up and he was like, how long did the film take to make? And I can't remember who was in the panel and he was like, how old are you, young man? And he's like, that. I'm six. And he's like, longer than you've been alive. And it's like, oh my God, that's crazy. It's, human, it's taken longer than this human being is in this room. It's so bonkers. Yeah. And then the, the, you know, composers come on board at the last minute. You know, I always think it must be so hard for them when we get to the, the final mix of these things to let go because they've, they've lived through, you know, this for years. You see at the yeah. end of all of these animation films, the, the list of animation babies, you know, the, the kids that have been born to the, the filmmakers during the making. And it's quite an extensive list quite a lot of the time. <laughs> So yeah, lives, lives change a lot to the new thing. How does something like this, you know, in terms of the, you know, it's, it's, it's the dark side of the moon. You're, you're, you're creating a, a, a beautiful kind of soundscape for to something like Gravity, which is, you know, in a similar environment, but a very different film. I, and I know they're very, very different films, but I mean, that, that score that you did for, for Gravity is just, I mean, listening back to it again over the last couple of days was just, it's so brilliant to hear stand alone outside the film because it's so emotive as well. We've kind of, and I, I hadn't, I haven't watched the film, you know, for, for a while sort of thing, but it's definitely, we're from listening to the score the last couple of days, I'm like, oh, I've got to go and watch the film again. But for that, was that a case of you came on when there was picture and when there was thing for you to see or, or where did Alfonso, when did he bring you in for that? That was, um, I mean, that was quite close to working on an animated film in lots of ways because everything in it was, was CGI beyond Sandra in, in lots of cases, Sandra Bullock. And so by the time I started, everything was quite close to the final form it was going to be in. You know, it just might go from quite a finished shot to one where it was just a polygon, you know, with a head floating on top of it. But you'd always get a sense of what was going to go on. You could always kind of really commit to, to timings. Mm -hmm. So in the same way as with an animation, you could kind of get your cue worked out and then spend a long time really finessing all the different details. And with that film, Gravity in particular, a lot of those details were, were emotional ones. And it was working out, you know, how you wanted to feel in every step of the way. And, you know, there were huge moments in that where, we'd spend ages just sort of trying to, to calibrate, you know, just, just the level of fear or the level of, of beauty that you wanted to hear at any point. That one, I always think of as scoring a kind of roller coaster ride, you know, and you were trying to really, really work out emotionally where you wanted to be. So you peaked at the right sort of times. 
And sometimes you wanted the audience to feel absolutely terrified. Sometimes you wanted to, them to feel sadness or whatever. Um, where something like like Over the Moon, it was much more, there's so much story going on um, in Over the Moon. There's so many twists and turns. It felt very much like you were, the, the big thing for me to concentrate on was making sure all these sequences didn't feel too disparate. It, it had to feel like they were flowing through. So different challenges, but I, I definitely like writing sort of nice, glorious re-entry sequences into the Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> that's, that's something I've... I'm enjoying doing. You do it very well. Bless <laughs> you. Thank you. And then you have this. We have this fantastic kind of you know David Attenborough synonymous with this world that he presents to us, and and obviously you know the dangers that our world is facing, and and getting us all to try and pay attention and and do our our bit. And you've worked on um, a life on our planet. This, uh, this new film with David Attenborough. And the great thing is Decca Records are releasing this score and it's, it's so brilliant to see it, particularly over the last few years, how soundtracks feel like they're really finally, eventually, are having their place in terms of, you know, they are standalone pieces of art outside the, the confines of what I guess they were created for. And that's so great to see. And how is it working on something like that? You know, with the, with the backdrop of Attenborough and this world that everybody already you know knows him for and loves him for, but having your creative spin on it and what you wanted to create with it and the emotions you wanted to convey, and also when you came on board and started working on it. This one came up um, towards the tail end of working on a show called Our Planet, which was um, a Netflix show, which kind of was more akin to the the big sort of planet Earth type things, and it's sort of huge music and huge spectaculars, and it's really celebratory of of the Earth. And during the end of that, it, this idea was, was being discussed that actually, because that one was, was touching on the environmental issues and it felt like there's so much more to say, David was very, very keen to, to really, for the first time, you know, become central to that. And for the first time, really, he's sitting on camera talking directly to you and, and describing his life and how it's, he's seen this, you know, 60 years of, of dissent, really. So the, the idea of, of making the film was there and then they, they kind of got on with it quite quickly afterwards. And I was always very much in touch with the, the directors of the film and it was, was thrilled and terrified to be asked to do it because it's Sir David's life story and it's his witness statement, you know, and it's really important. And I've, I've, I can't remember never hearing his voice has been part of my life forever, you know, like lots of us. 
And so the key thing for me was, you know, if I do it, he has to like it. He has to, it has to be something he, he would listen to. And so I started talking to the people making the film about what sort of music does he like? What does he, what's he into? And because they, they'd spent a lot of time working on the film with him, they'd seen the record collection, which is all chamber music. You know, that's his thing. He likes more intimate stuff than we'd been doing on these big series. And so that was the first decision was to, to okay, whatever I do, it's going to be in his honour and it's going to feel like the sort of music he does. And it, it fits his character, you know, because it's beautiful and honest and it's clear and there's a lot of clarity to it, but it can kind of take you on this journey. And that's kind of what we tried to do with the film. So, so it starts off with the spirit of adventure of, of a young man going and exploring the world and being one of the first people to travel around the world. And then this gradual sense of impending awfulness as he realizes how it's got totally knackered. And, and it, was, it was at once lovely to write for and also heartbreaking because we, we, I wrote it in the order of the film and we do start with enthusiasm. And there's a very dark period in the middle where you kind of get shown A, the state we're in now and B, what's going to happen over the next 70, 80 years unless we really start acting. And it was, it was kind of, it was tricky to do, but you were always very... You just follow David with those things. You just follow his words. You just follow the way he describes things. And, and as long as I kept to that, it seemed like we, we did okay. And hopefully we end with a bit of optimism in the end as well, because he does feel, I think, as he makes clear in the film, that you know, there is hope there. There are many differences between humans and the rest of the species on Earth, but one that has been expressed is that we alone are able to imagine the future. For a long time, I, and perhaps you, have dreaded that future. But now it's becoming apparent that it's not all doom and gloom. There's a chance for us to make amends, to complete our journey of development, manage our impact, and once again become a species in balance with nature. All we need is the will to do so. We now have the opportunity to create the perfect home for ourselves and restore the rich, healthy and wonderful world that we inherited. Just imagine that.
it's really powerful and i think that it complements like you say the the drama of of this you know our world really that he's he's narrating his experience of and there's two particular cues that really were from what you were just saying as well i thought were, were so, so kind of powerful in that which was a devastating impact and the whole of humanity which is like i mean to have a to have a piece of music titled the whole of humanity as well it's got a massive gravitas to it already hasn't it that was that that was the piece you know there's there's always this bit when you start a project when you have to present your your music to people and it's always horrible and it's always terrifying because you know if you if you've read the film wrong then there's kind of, there is a big sort of cloud hanging over you for quite a while afterwards and there's if you're lucky there's one piece that everyone goes oh i like that and that piece there, the, the whole of humanity, which is one of my favourite sequences in the film. Anyway, it's when he's he's talking about the, the Apollo mission and the first time we saw the Earth from afar, you know, this yeah. blue marble. And um, that bit of music um, just seemed to land with everyone. And then all of a sudden you can kind of relax and start to enjoy the process rather than feel terrified. And that became a sort of recurring, recurring theme throughout the film. And one of them that, that when so we did the sessions at Abbey Road at the end of last year, um, that was one of the pieces we were playing on the day that, that Sir David came into the studio, which was like a massive sort of honour for, for me, just having him come to a session anyway. Um, but he was there for a bit of that. And then a, a piece called We Must Rewild the, the, the Planet. And that's one of the bigger moments. That's when sort of things unleash a little bit. And he actually went down to the studio floor to talk to the musicians before we played that. And uh, in fact, we'd rehearsed it a couple of times before he came in. And then he, he came in and he did this brilliant off-the-cuff speech to the musicians, just almost apologising. I wish we didn't have to make this film, but we do. And this is our duty and, you know, this sort of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, they, they played it and it was about four times louder than they had done before he spoke and four <laughs> times more spirited. And, you know, and we couldn't use it, but it was just one of those fantastic <laughs> moments. It was like, you know... We are facing nothing less than the collapse of the living world. The very thing that gave birth to our civilization, the thing we rely upon for every element of the lives we lead. 
No one wants this to happen. None of us can afford for it to happen. So what do we do? It's quite straightforward. It's been staring us in the face all along. To restore stability to our planet, we must restore its biodiversity, the very thing that we've removed. It's the only way out of this crisis that we have created. We must rewild the world. brilliant i mean you know you have kind of you pretty much soundtracked his life now that's brilliant i love that and the fact he was there is you know his spirit will be within that forever now that's wonderful so nice yeah i, I think we all hope that people watch it you know it's it yeah. is to me it's the most powerful kind of descriptions of where we're at mm. uh, than anything i've seen and we just hope that you know people actually watch it it's it's, it's tricky times isn't it to, to present anything a little bit depressing to people but um hopefully people have time and and space to to, to yeah. watch that film he's got so he's such a compelling character and kind of you know i kind of he's got a hypnotic sense to him in terms of anything he's he does i'll kind of watch because i just we just love him my my 12 year old son is obsessed and because of watching him for his entire life he wants to be a wildlife photographer so it's kind of yeah and i've got children the same age and it's amazing how engaged they are with all this stuff you know and and that's the hope i guess is that that you know they, they can make up for some of the massive mistakes the rest of us have made. <laughs> yeah. Do you mind if we talk a little bit about how you started composing? Because it sounds like a really interesting journey where you, from what I've read anyways, that you kind of, you know, you've got lots of different bits of experience before the, you kind of, I don't know, will you tell me, where, where did it all start for you in terms of, of composing for, for film and TV? Well, I, I kind of wanted to, to do the composing bit forever. You know, that was always the thing that I wanted to do. But what, what I found out um, early on was that it was really hard to, to get going. You know, it was really hard to, to get people to entrust you with their films, which is what it is at the end of the day. You know, sort of music has such an influence on, on these things. So I, I just kind of, I got really lucky when I was in my early 20s and I got um, experience working for a composer called Trevor Jones, who's sort of known for things like Last of the Mohicans and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And I got to sort of sit with him and a, a load of scores together where I'd literally be sitting next to him and sort of programming by the side of him as he was talking. And, you know, I would arrange things. And, and that basically, I, I had this approach that, that I would just make myself useful and hope for the best. And that kind of meant I would do everything. So I've made a lot of tea. I've done arrangements. <laughs> I've done some orchestration stuff. I, I would do the technical stuff if it was needed. And basically kept going and doors would just every now and then open slightly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because Trevor was always at Abbey Road, that when they were looking to put a crew together for the Lord of the Rings films, the people to, to help music edit those, I was asked, are you interested in that? I was like, like yeah. And I didn't know what music <laughs> editing was at that point, but I kind of blagged my way onto that. And that <laughs> led to other stuff. And 
after a few years of being kind of, of useful, then it became kind of like, well, how do I cross over to, to composing now? Because you get known for being useful in other worlds of, of music. It was really tricky. I mean, I was just lucky to work with um, Edgar Wright. I'd, I'd been introduced to him in about 2007. And he was just starting off the, the script for Baby Driver, which we ended up finishing 10 years later. Oh, my God. Um, but I, I worked on, on some early iterations of that, just helping with, with musical aspects of that script and just helping him with, with kind of, you know, how the song was structured and how it might work with other things. And then that led to working on Scott Pilgrim versus the World with him, um, where I did um, some additional stuff with, with Nigel Godrich, who like the great godlike genius Nigel Godrich, who did the score for that film. And I was around that process. And then Edgar went on to produce Joe Cornish's first film, Attack the Block. Mm -hmm. They needed to score and they didn't have much money. I was just sort of around and known for, for a bit. So that opened that door, which then opened the, the gravity door when Alfonso was looking for a composer who hadn't done so much before. Because So it took ages. And then, and it then you got an Oscar. <laughs> and then it went very well for a um, it was funny how how it you know just yeah. all these jobs and these what felt like massive dead ends half the time would suddenly you know a little glimmer of hope would appear over there so you'd run over there for a little bit and see where that took you so it's it's far from a, a regular route but I've not met anyone yet who's had a straight line sort of journey with this that we've all seemed to come at it from different angles and different approaches it's also really important and helpful when you have an understanding of of lots of different roles around the composer you know it's it's kind of yeah. It's similarly, when I started in radio, you know, I, I got work, ex I blagged work experience at my local radio station and I kind of lived there for a month in yeah. the holidays and just wanted, and just did everything, you know, filing CDs, making tea, oh, I just wanted to learn, I wanted to see what everyone does. And I think that enthusiasm can kind of really penetrate and be infectious and... And like you say, people do recognise that, I think. That's it. Eventually, you know, I think if you've, if you've been there, I think there's a lot to be said for that whole 10,000 hours thing, you know, and it's, it, it felt when the opportunities did come, I was really grateful I'd had that, you know, it was years, like 13 years or something of, of doing all these other things. Because when the opportunity did come, I was kind of ready for it. And whilst it was a huge challenge, a lot of the stuff that would have tripped me up I'd, I'd done it, you know, so, so I could just really focus on the creative stuff of it. So, yeah, at the time, I would have told you it was really, ah, oh, I'm never going to get anywhere. But it was, I'm kind of grateful it took me ages now. I was talking about Attack the Block uh, a couple of weeks ago. I love that film for various reasons. I was talking to, I can't remember who it was first of all, and then Nick Frost came and did the London Podcast Festival with me. And so it gave us an opportunity to play uh, a couple of scenes from that to the to the audience, very small socially distanced audience that was with us at King's Place. Oh, it's such a great film. 
such a great film. It's like if, if people haven't seen Attack the Block, then you go, it's it's brilliant, so great. I thought the tone of it and Joe did such a great job, as did you with the score. film was just full of anything. I remember the first time I saw, saw you know, a rough cut of it and just seeing John Boyega for the first time and knowing that he was going to be a massive star. He just had, it was just, there was something there. All kudos to, to Joe for, you know, everything he did on that because I just yeah. said, yeah, big fan of that. And Nick Frost is just great. I got to do The World's End with Nick Frost a couple of years <laughs> after that. And that's one of my favourite performances by him as well. He just makes me laugh every time that. We had some clips from that as well. And it's really clever because Edgar obviously loves kind of needle drops, you know. He uses, he uses needle drops, you know, all the time and has done, particularly with that trilogy. But then also Baby Driver. I mean, I mean the, the, choreo- the musical choreography in that film, we had, we had a whole episode where I tried to understand it from chatting to him and I still can't quite get my head around how he managed to do it. But it's so interesting hearing you say that you'd been, what, you'd been working with him 10 years before it was released. Minute, tiny details of that as well. The detail is, is just fascinating. It's, the, it's so fun to get into the, the, the process with him. And we're, we're just completing his next film at the moment where it almost feels like we've taken some of those techniques and gone further than Baby Driver. You know, it's a very, very different sort of a film. Yeah. But musically, it's... The, the, the combination of, of needle drops and score, it's really exciting just to keep pushing that and seeing what you can do with it. And, you know, it's, it's yeah, I'm really excited for people to see that film. It's, it feels totally different to anything certainly I've ever done before. I can't wait. I'm so glad you got it finished filming as well. Yeah, whew, just whew. <laughs> Absolutely. And this, Diana Riggs' final performance, just amazing in it. So, yeah, it's, uh, we're finishing that off at the moment. Oh, are you? Oh, God, I can't wait. I can't wait. I need to mention the Aeronauts as well, because I love that film. I did a little Q&A actually with Felicity and, and Eddie and Tom, and I just, I thought it was stunning. It was stunning. And I just, again, it was one of those instances where you're like, how the hell did you manage to do that? I just thought the central performances in that were, were extraordinary. And Himesh Patel as well, I thought it was brilliant kind of light relief in there as well. But the score on that was beautiful. And again, it's this kind of, you do lots of great things, Stephen, but this, how you manage to, um, to musically facilitate this particular part of earth, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this kind of, there's moments. And I think what Tom did really well is that he didn't overload it in the in yeah. moments where you, you heard nothing because that's what it's, that's what's going on up there. Or it was wind or it was, but I just thought the delicacies of how the score worked with that film was 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 really great what was that one like to work on I loved working on that and I loved working with Tom and it was it, all the things you, you talk about about his sense of, of the restraint of it all was fantastic because it just it meant it did make me go quieter and quieter in, in different places of it 
and he's very into to, you know hearing detail and hearing almost almost the the, the edge of, of notes where things are almost a mistake you know and so I do a lot of recording very early on in that you know the, the way that the film was and the fact that you would go from this intimate you know the two people in the hot air balloon the gas balloon rather and then there's these huge vistas just opened up all these ideas for music you know and, and we had this rule that as soon as we went off the ground everything you hear would be wind generated so it's brass instruments and woodwinds and voices and you know you know brass instruments when they're, they're not really playing them properly they're just kind of blowing over the, the air pieces and people just sighing and all these sort of things And sometimes it would just get more, just those tiny little noises, you could afford to play them so, so gently, it would just kind of make you lean in. But then in the next thing, you'd have this great big vista where you could kind of record those instruments from further away in a bigger group and just kind of morph between the perspectives of it. It was one of those lovely kind of collaborations where, where I'd play him something and he'd come up with another idea that just shoot you off and, and make it all better. So yeah, it was a, a lot of fun doing that one. Do you have a specific instrument that you, that is your kind of go-to to start? Guitar is a big thing for you, isn't it? You're a big guitarist. I'm a big guitar noodler, yeah. And that's a lot of the <laughs> sort of, I mean, that, that Aeronaut, for example, was was um, written on guitar, the, the, the main tune for that, just because I was, the idea of big open spaces was kind of um, the first thing we talked about and how to, to express. So I just went for open tunings on the guitar and just made it so that you couldn't go wrong, basically, on the guitar and everything would sound glorious. And then mm. individual rising kind of melodies through that. A lot of the stuff, if I'm in the studio, it tends to be sort of piano-based. I have this terrible habit when I finish work for the day, I'll go in and watch TV, but I always have a guitar with me. And so often that's when the little noodly thing that you'll just record happens that the next day you'll bring into the studio. And then a huge amount of singing into voice memos when I'm wandering about as well. That's <laughs> to be um, an embarrassing habit. But yeah, it's a um, combination of, of all those things, really, whatever, whatever works. And did you work with um, Kevin McDonald and Marley as well? On the documentary, yeah, only only very briefly. There was a very very small amount of of um, sourced music in in that. I mean, I loved that film. I thought he did a great job with that. Oh, so good. And I just did a, a few little bits that, yeah, just just moments when you couldn't use you know the source music, just just moments to kind of support a few dramatic sort of things in that. But yeah, love love that film. Thought him. he's great with documentaries. I love his work. Yeah, with with something like that though, do you have to? Because obviously, you know, it's it's a documentary about Bob Marley, so his music features very heavily within the the music. And so, when you're when you're creating little bits of additional music, are you trying to really stay away from the 
sonic sound of his music or is that is, is that influencing you it definitely influences I, I i kind of it's, it's almost like an essence of it you know because there's nothing mm -hmm. nothing worse than me trying to do a, a, a reggae track you know that's gonna, <laughs> that's gonna make no one very happy but there's, there's something if you sort of extract just something from that and I remember a lot of the, what I did for that was was um, kind of broken Hammond sort of textures, you know, where it sort of you, you took some of the, the sort of Hammondy stuff that was in the original tracks, but you know, just the idea of that instrument, but then in a sort of melted, dramaticy sort of way that would just just kind of hold your hand as you went from from this place to this place in the story. Um, so hopefully, it didn't feel like it, it kind of stuck out. You know, it felt like it was part of the same tapestry, but yeah, in a, in a sympathetic way. Can you tell me what a music editor does? Um, it's different with every project. I mean, it, the projects I used to get were the ones that, that there wouldn't be, you know, the, the directors didn't want to use a composer. And so it was going to be all source music. And, and then you'd end up doing the little bits that join things up. You know, I remember doing a film called The Boat That Rocked for Richard Curtis. And that was, you know, there were, there were, no, we're not going to have a, a, a score in this. Could you just write us a... <laughs> but they were great. I used to love that. And you used to sort of, you know, hope that there'd be these little opportunities to, to just replace something. <laughs> or you know there were there were little moments with that where we'd we'd have a song and then go out of the song into to a score thing but then back into it yeah and if you could make that sound seamless and to carry the drama of it all i used to love all that sort of stuff um but then in other films you'd kind of um, i worked on things like batman begins and then you'd be kind of the the, the middleman between the director and the composers just making sure that both sides were feeling they were getting what they needed from the other one because you know often directors there's no reason why directors should have like a musical vocabulary yeah and that everyone communicates differently about music anyway some people like glenn you know all he wanted to do was talk about feelings you know how it was making him feel he we never talked about notes we never talked about melodies it was always about the feelings so that's one sort of communication and other people would be you know much more specific about what they wanted and what instruments they do and don't like and so music editorial for me was always just making both sides feel like they could, you know, the directors were getting what they wanted. The musicians felt like they were kind of happy with what they were doing and just kind of holding a hand to that process, which was the single most useful experience I could get for what I do now, really, because every film is different and every filmmaker is different. And so, you know, just being around all those different situations and being in cutting rooms as well because you are around the editorial process. And I think if I hadn't been around so much of that, I would take it much more personally when they chop a scene. You know, when you've done, when you've scored a scene and, and people are happy with it and then they, they, they cut it all up, you can go, well, they clearly hated the music. But having been in the cutting room, you know that there's a million other considerations going on and the music's one tiny bit of it, but all these other things are coming into the mix and they're getting notes from execs over here and this, that and the other. And so that was, that was all useful stuff, just to know that, you know, it's, it's not like they're just sitting around trying to work out how to, to, to screw up the music. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that from a few people. You have to have quite a thick skin. You're providing for the film, really, aren't you, in a way? It's kind of you're part of the puzzle. Yeah, I mean, I think that, the, the, you know, when I look at it rationally, which is usually after a project, where the, when you're in the thick of it, you take everything personally. <laughs> it's that thing of, of interpreting the notes. You know, it's, at the end of the day, I, I could get a note that, that my first reaction to it is like, oh, God, that's going to ruin everything. But then the challenge is to, to, okay, how can I do that in a way that I also think it's good, you know, mm -hmm. and that, that I'm doing what you've asked me to do and what works for the film, but also it fits within how I think it should work too. And if, if everything goes well, you kind of manage to keep everyone happy and you're proud of it too. Those are the kind of, yeah, the things you, you end up happy with.
we're run out of time, but I was going to ask um, if I if I speak to Edgar, please will you come back and we'll do a, a an episode with you and Edgar talking about the new film together, because then we can also talk a bit more about you know working together on Baby Driver and and World's End as well. But that would be amazing if you'd be up for it to come back and do a. Oh, I'd definitely be up for it. And it's um, Edgar and music. It's just um, yeah, it's always fascinating talking to him about that anyway because he, he's heard everything and he's thought yeah. about everything. So yeah, I'd learn lots. Though terrifying interviewing him about it because it's like what am I going to ask him because he knows everything but um yeah that would be awesome if you'd be up for it and he's put some amazing tracks in in the new one as well so it's um yeah there's lots to talk about for music great listen thank you so much for your time it's so great to finally get to get you on the on the show and you know I really hope people will go and check out Life on Our Planet and also Over the Moon that are available now for people to go and check out because they are um really beautiful productions and and the scores just complement them them perfectly so it's really lovely to chat to you and and i'll see you soon i hope thank you very much indeed it's been great to speak to you cheers bye steve and see you later take care stay safe and you to world's end that's the king's head by stephen price rounding off this latest episode of soundtracking with the supremely likable humble and hugely talented composer my huge thanks to stephen for taking the time to talk to us both over the moon and a life on our planet are available to watch right now on netflix with the scores out on sony and deco records respectively you will not be disappointed if you check out the lot Now we'll put up a Spotify playlist for the show via edithbowman.com where you can also catch up with all of our previous episodes, including both my conversations with Edgar Wright and, of course, Joe Cornish. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And also, if you have the time, please head to YouTube to subscribe to our show. It's called Soundtrack and Extra, and it's a companion piece to this podcast, celebrating all the wonderful, talented people that don't quite fit in the podcast format. So we wanted to celebrate the brilliant work that they do anyway. Next up, now, some of you, if you're regular listeners to the podcast, may realise that this gentleman only appeared back in September on this podcast, but we are thrilled to have Ludwig Gorenson back to talk specifically and in great detail about the fabulous Mandalorian, Ludwig Gorenson, next week's guest, welcoming him back with open arms to soundtracking. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. In the meantime, please stay safe, folks. (laughs) 